for who can stop the Lord's Almighty? No one, certainly not death, could not keep him in the grave. Got to say it again. He is risen. Man, that's sweet. For if it is not true, we most of all are to be pitied. But it is true. Well, it is Easter Sunday. And as with every Sunday, but perhaps with greater intensity today, we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But in celebrating His resurrection, we're not merely celebrating an empty tomb. As amazing as that is, we don't merely just not serve a dead Savior. But we celebrate His resurrection and all that comes with it. And there's a lot that comes with it, especially in the future. You know, as we've learned in our study of the series of Hebrews, He is not only alive, but He is ministering in the throne room of God, praying for His church, sustaining us, seeing us through persecution, and He will complete that which He has begun. Amen? And He will see us through to the very end. His resurrection and glorification means that our resurrection and glorification is guaranteed without a doubt. That hope is one of certainty. His is the first fruits of ours. And one day we will be with Him and we will be like Him. And I think a lot of that is lost on Easter Sundays, right? You know, with, with, with everyone showing up and we try to put on a show for, for Christers, right? Can I say Christers? That's a Christmas and Easter Christians. And so, man, we got to put our best face forward and we're celebrating the resurrection. It's like, like we do every Sunday. And the resurrection is not a date on the calendar, but it is the very reason by which we are able to live and breathe and stay the course and be bold in our faith and endure hardship and persecution because our hope is secure. The cross is amazing. He absorbed the just wrath of God. Justice was satisfied. Mercy was extended. And we are saved by grace through faith. But it is the resurrection that is God's stamp of paid in full. It is God's resurrection that we look forward to in our own resurrection. His resurrection guarantees ours. When we say He is risen, He is risen indeed, we're not just saying Jesus is alive. Death couldn't keep Him in the ground. What we're saying is that He will triumphantly return. He will judge the living and the dead. He will set up His kingdom. He will create and recreate a new heavens and a new earth. And His bride will be brought into eternity. Boy, try, try saying that to your neighbor. He is risen. They say He is risen indeed. And say, Can I explain to you what that means? Can we talk a little bit deeper about what it means to know Jesus Christ and look forward to His return and all that that entails? And so I'm kind of putting the cart before the horse this morning, but I want to get us excited about the resurrection. 
I want us to start to, to think in terms and through the grid of the resurrection. Because if I was to stop right now and pass out note cards, every single one of you would have something on your mind from something that happened yesterday or this morning or the parking lot miracle when you get out of the car after a fight with your spouse and Lord bless you, you know. And yet, we are able to live through that, to respond rightly because of the power of the resurrection. So I want you to imagine the Apostle John writing his final book as he's exiled on the Isle of Patmos in the middle of the Med. It is here that the resurrection is fully realized in his vision. Just listen as he writes. Revelation 19. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of many pearls of thunder saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous act of the saints. Then He said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do that, for I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. For John, it all made sense. Oh, he understood the importance. He had seen his risen Savior. He had been taught by his risen Savior. He had spent those 40 days after he rose again with him. He had endured persecution. Church history tells us that, that he was boiled in tar and yet survived. He was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. He died an old man, but he stayed true to the faith. So he understood the power of the resurrection. But here, here, he gets a glimpse of the effects of of the resurrection. He gets a glimpse of the domino effect of what the resurrection produces. The marriage supper of the Lamb. And it made sense. And we too get that glimpse as we read the canon of Scripture. And so today, rather than preaching from 1 Corinthians 15 or, or the accounts in the gospel of his resurrection, we're going to look at John chapter 2. It'll take a while to become clear, but I think you'll understand. Think of it like this. Think of it as we've just, we've just read what's going to happen as a result of the resurrection. Now, like a good movie, we're going to look at a flashback. We're going to go back to the beginning. And like the disciples, we're going to see a, a glimpse, a glimpse of his glory. A glimpse of his glory that will be produced in the resurrection. Would you pray with me and we'll look at it together? 
Gracious Father, we thank you for this body of believers. We thank you that we can gather and sing praises to your name and glorify our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lion and the Lamb. For who can stop the Lord's Almighty? Certainly not death. And so on this day, as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, our Bridegroom, who will one day come back for us, I pray that our hearts would be full, our faith would be strengthened, we would become bold in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And Father, when we sin, we would hit our faces and confess and praise your name for the forgiveness that is found at the cross. Lord, today give us a fresh perspective, a resurrection perspective on how we can live effectively, triumphantly, and joyously as we take part in advancing Christ's kingdom here on earth and as we look forward to the realization of the messianic kingdom in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're in John chapter 2, Juan capítulo 2, versículo 1 al 11. And we're going to look at what we know as Christ's first miracle. In fact, I want to encourage you today, we're all, can I say, overly familiar with this miracle, perhaps from Sunday school or vacation Bible school. I really want to encourage you to look at, look at it in a fresh way. Wipe that slate clean and let's approach the text and let God speak to us today. Now, it helps to understand uh, the evangelist's intent. John wants his readers to know that Jesus is indeed the long-awaited Messiah. The Amashia, that's, that's the Aramaic, which is, its counterpart is Christos. Jesus Christos, the Christ, the Messiah. He wants them to understand that Jesus is the long-awaited King of Israel. But as important as that is, he wants them to understand something even more, that this Messiah is God incarnate, something that no Jew expected. Listen to his purpose statement in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that, here it is, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. And let me set the stage for us. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and His disciples were invited to the wedding. Okay, familiar with that? Where's Cana, though? Well, Cana is a little podunk town where Christ chooses to start his public ministry in a very private way. It's eight miles from his own hometown of Nazareth, and it's actually Nathaniel, one of the apostles' hometown, one of the disciples that he met just a few days ago. So this is all very fresh. John's uh, gospel is not synoptic. It's not in order. It's got seven signs, and it's meant to produce faith Belief that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. So he writes them not in order, but according to signs. 
And yet this is at the very beginning of his ministry. He's just chosen his disciples. They've been invited to a wedding with him. And there's something very interesting that's about to happen. If you're taking notes, the text divides itself into two parts. Number one, the faux pas at the party. The faux pas at the party. And number two, a glimpse of his glory. Let's look at the first one. The faux pas at the party. Now when the, the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now you're probably thinking, This doesn't seem like that big of a deal. If you knew my family, you would know why we're out of wine too, right? But this seriously is a potentially huge embarrassment. If you were to fast forward to something that might be a a contemporary parallel, it would be like the bride or the groom showing up at the ceremony completely disheveled, two hours late, and three sheets to the wind. I mean, it ruins everything. There's no coming back from it. This is such a problem that lawsuits were filed over this. That's how serious it was. I kid you not. Jewish weddings were put on by the groom's family, and they were, get this, the social event of the season. And they often lasted a week. You didn't just say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm available Saturday afternoon from 3 to 5. I, I can... I can make this. We'll get in. We'll eat some good food. We'll say hello. Glad to hand a few people. We're out. We got a date night, honey. Don't worry about it. No, no, no. This is a commitment. You traveled. You found lodging with family members or friends. And you spent a week together. Now, during this time, it was paramount that the party was catered accordingly. That means you could not, not only not run out of wine... But you had to make sure that all the food was prepared properly, that it was kosher, and that this was a great event, something to remember. Now, we don't know what day this is, but I'll promise you it's not day seven, and it's not time to sing, turn out the lights, the party's over. This is early on, maybe midway through, and they've run out of wine. Now, there's another interesting point here. Who seems to know about this before anyone else? Mary. None of the wedding guests seem to know, and yet she knows. And I don't know how this happened, but you can imagine her breaking protocol, interrupting male guests. Perhaps Jesus is talking to someone, and she says, excuse me, come here, come here. Closes the door behind. We're out of wine. Do something. I mean, that's, that's the impression you get. We're out. I don't know what we're going to do. What are you going to do? She leans heavy on her eldest son. Now, I don't think she expects him to do a miracle here. But I do think she's used to relying upon him as the man of the house. We don't seem to see Joseph anywhere in the scene since that whole lost child incident back at the temple many years ago. Most commentators believe that he's passed on and that he, as the eldest, the birthright, now is the man of the house. He's gone from being known as the carpenter's son to the carpenter and now as the rabbi. So he is respected, and yet Mama still depends upon him. So watch his response in that light in verse 4. Woman, what does this have to do with us? 
Now, that always bothered me. Did that, has that bothered you before? It's like, this is his mom. What's going on here? I like the way the Net Bible, the New English translation, renders it. Quote, woman, why are you saying this to me? That seems to fit better. The term woman really doesn't give us a sense of what he's saying. It, it, it's close to ma'am, like here in the South, but it's not yes ma'am. It's, it's a polite distancing. It's not rude, but it is kind of like, ma'am, this is really none of my business. This is not really anything that I should be concerned about. And then he adds something to it. Look at the second part of verse 4, and this is the key to the whole passage. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Now, what, what does that mean? Why is that paramount to a proper interpretation of this passage? Now, she may be a mother simply asking for her oldest son, the man of the house, to, to fix it. But Jesus knows that in order for him to fix it, it's going to require a miracle. You don't just go down to your nearest liquor store or to the Tom Thumb and buy a bunch of wine. And yet he's not ready. He's not ready to reveal his glory. There's a time for that. That term hour is repeated again by the Apostle John in chapter 13. Listen to it. And now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now when was this? This was the Last Supper. This is where he raises the third cup of redemption, a toast of wine. His hour had come. What was his hour? His hour was his death and resurrection. It's where he says, this is my blood given for you. He also uses this term in John 17, 1. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. So the hour is when Jesus is glorified through his death and resurrection. The hour is when he is glorified, both through his death and resurrection. This is the very reason for which he came. And in that moment, his glory is revealed and he purchases a bride. And he's promised not to drink of the fruit of the vine again until he does it. When? At the marriage feast of the Lamb. So, if I was to recap this conversation with each person's intended meaning, this is what it would sound like. Yeshua, Jesus, we're out of wine. What are you going to do about this? Ma'am, this is not my wedding. The time for me to supply a great amount of wine is at the Messianic banquet, the marriage feast of the Lamb. So they're talking past each other. But Jesus understands it clearly. I'm not ready to reveal my glory. The hour for my wedding, for my banquet, where I supply wine, that's in the future. 
It's not yet now. And right off the bat, you can see there is a change of relationship going on here. He, he transitions from a son to a master. And she transitions from a mother to a servant. Don Carson explains it this way. Quote, we must not avoid the conclusion that Jesus, by rebuking his mother, however courteously, declares at the beginning of his ministry his utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. He has embarked on his ministry. The purpose of his coming, his only lodestar, is his heavenly Father's will. Now, watch how she responds. Verse 5. Whatever he says to do, do it. What is that? My friends, that is faith. That is faith. She takes the rebuke and she trusts him. This is not, as the Roman Catholic Church says, Mary acting in a, in, in a mediatrix role where with a wink of an eye, she kind of cajoles her son to do something and turns around and says, yeah, yeah, I just talked him into it. Can I just say that's blasphemous? Nowhere in Scripture do we see Mary having that kind of authority. She is a sinner in need of grace like the rest of us. She was very honored to be chosen to be our Lord's mother. But Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. Now, it's important for us to understand that this is not a mean-spirited conversation, but is the necessary way he must love her. For she, too, must have faith in the Son of God, not just in who she thinks her son is. And she responds, Salvation comes by grace through faith in the blood of the cross, not the blood of the family. And she asks as a mother, but she responds as a follower. Amen? And so that's the situation in which we find ourselves. It's a pretty big faux pas. What's going to happen? Well, before you think you know, let's again take a step back. And let me explain the importance of both wine in the Old Testament and in this agrarian culture. Look at our second point, a glimpse of His glory. I want to read to you some passages in the Old Testament that talk about the coming of the Messiah. And I want you to hear how wine is associated with this. Amos chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. When the mountains will drip sweet wine, and all the hills will be dissolved. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them, and they will plant vineyards and drink their wine, and make gardens and eat their fruit. Jeremiah 31, For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the hand of him who was stronger than he. They will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion, and they will be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and the new wine and the oil. Isaiah 25, 6, The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. 
And David writes in Psalm 104, God made wine, which makes a man's heart glad. It's hard for us to see here in the West, but in the Palestinian culture, okay, and in the Old Testament, wine, an abundance of wine, a, a good crop, a banquet with flowing wine was seen as a blessing. Times of God's favor, of great joy and celebration. Drunkenness has always been wrong. Don't get me wrong, okay? But wine, anytime you see wine in Scripture, unless it's being rebuked like in Proverbs, or talking about a sluggard abusing it, what we see is a time of celebration. And so we, we can't divorce that picture from this story because it's going to make sense when we understand it properly. These are the things that are associated with the coming of the Messiah and his kingdom. All these things are things that man could not produce on his own, but required a divine hand. Good rains, proper sunshine, no pestilence. Now, back to the story in verse 6. There were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Now, these are not hand-washing stations to clean up before a meal after you've been outside. These are ceremonial pots. We know that because they're stone and not earthenware. Earthenware would not be pure. These are large stone pots, and they were used for purification. You've, you remember the story of um, being asked well, to Jesus, why don't your disciples wash like the, uh, the religious authorities tell us? Why don't they, they let it run down here and do it six or seven times or however many? So these are for purification. But this water could not purify. Like the law, it had to be done over and over again. But it was a picture of purification. It was a shadow of what was to come in Christ. So these huge potter, uh, water pots are a picture of the law but they're also a picture of its inability to save. It could not do what grace can. Look at verse 7. Jesus said, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And so they took it to him. Now, you've you got to wonder what these servants are thinking. <laughs> they were the ones that filled up these water pots and hauled these water pots in, stone and eight pounds a gallon, times 20 or 30. I mean, okay, I'm not good at math, but that's a lot, okay? Those are heavy. They're exhausted, and they're, they're thinking, okay, this guy's lost his marbles. And yet they do it. Yet they do it. This requires in and of itself an act of faith. Let's keep in mind that these guys are not looking through fine crystal where they can see the beautiful red coloring or smell the bouquet. These are stone pots and they're dipping in a wood chalice. And they're having to take it to the chief head waiter. Now you've got to realize this guy is not part of the, the, the wait staff, okay? He is the chief butler. Literally, the term is he's the ruler of the table. He not only chose the wine, he distributed the wine. So his entire career is on the line as well. 
This is like watching a kitchen reality show where they start playing music in the background. Is it going to work? Right? What's going to be the response? Is he going to spit it out on the floor? He's going to say, why did you bring me water? Verse 9, when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Let me translate from the Greek. Oh my goodness, this is the best Cabernet Sauvignon I have ever had. Why would you save this until the last? This is crazy. And he doesn't know where it's come from. Jesus just took water, well water, for washing your hands and purification and made 180 gallons of the best-tasting stuff you have ever had. It makes Napa Valley taste like Gatorade. It was that special. And that's usually where we end the story. Isn't this amazing? That Jesus would take such... Here's how it usually is preached. Jesus would take just such a mundane event. He cares so much that he, he takes even our faux pas and he makes them right. You ever heard that? And they completely miss it. You're meant to look here and see that the Messiah does what God, what man cannot. The God-man does what no one else can do. Romans chapter 8 brings it all together. For what the law could not do, the purification... That you had to do over and over again that could not say what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. You start to see the connection? This thing is replete with the law, repetitive, dead symbolic things that only bring about death. But when the Messiah comes, he does what the law cannot do, and there is great bounty. 180 gallons of great bounty. He takes that which was used for external purification and he turns it into joyous celebration. He, he takes that which belongs to the law and he replaces it with grace. He takes that which was required and replaces it with that which is desired. He takes a shortage and converts it into a surplus. There's a glimpse going on here. There's a glimpse of the future. It's like, you know, you've all kind of seen a movie. It's almost like Jesus peels back his robe a little bit. There's bright light shining through. He is more than just a carpenter. Oh, he's more than just a rabbi. John says, I'll go a step further. He's more than what you expect in a Messiah. He's God. This is not some sort of magic trick. This is meant to show us a glimpse that the king is among us. The Messiah has arrived. 
This is, this is but a taste of the messianic kingdom to come. We would say, this is what the resurrection produces. This is the reality of the resurrection. And John's thinking about this as he's riding on the Isle of Patmos. And, and, and in his mind, you know he understood that, that because death couldn't hold him, that he was more than just man. He was indeed God. But then the more you start to think about these seven signs that he had written about, he realizes how great the messianic kingdom is to come. How amazing it is going to be. Now, in light of that, look at verse 11. The beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, Galilee and manifested his glory, and watch this, circle this, and his disciples, what? Believed in him. Believed in him. The phrase reads literally, they put their faith in him. These are not some sort of super apostles. They're not like the carved statues we see in Rome. These are fishermen and tax collectors and zealots. And, and they're just children in the faith. And yet, here it says, they believe. And Jesus reveals a glimpse of his glory so that their faith might be strengthened. That's why he does it. And that's why we have it here. So when we say he is risen, he is risen indeed. If it stops just at the tomb, we don't understand how that strengthens our faith other than the fact that we don't serve a dead Savior, which is a big deal. But it means so much more when we understand that he is coming back triumphantly, that the dead in Christ will rise first, and those of us who are alive will be caught up and we will forever be with them. And we will have a marriage supper of the Lamb. That's amazing. And we will be with Him always. He will judge the living and the dead. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. And the King will be on His throne. That's what it means when we say He is risen. Take that sign and put it in your yard. So many people come up and ask you. And this is why we celebrate. This is why there is so much to celebrate. This is why you can pick so many texts throughout the New Testament. You could, we could have Easter every week. I could preach text after text after text after text. Why? Because it's full of the resurrection. It just bubbles to the top. We are his bride. And you say, well, that's great, Rod. I'm glad you're excited about it. Give me the practical, Right? Okay, I'm glad you asked. This means that our faith can be strengthened by this. How strong is your faith right now? How strong? You're like me sometimes? Knees shaking a little bit? Say the right things? Put amen in the right places? Write down some good stuff in your journal, but, but you're shaky? Your face weak? I'll promise you there is a direct correlation between the strength of your faith in comparison to the understanding of the effects of the resurrection. Let me say that again. I'll promise you there is a direct correlation between the strength of your faith and understanding the effects of Christ's resurrection. It's so much more than an empty tomb. 
His resurrection guarantees ours. His is the first fruits of our resurrection. His guarantees that what we read from John in his gospel means that what we read in Revelation is also true. Justice will be served. Evil will be defeated. He will carry us through to the very end. It impacts how we live. It impacts, watch this, the risks we take. So now I'm going to get real practical. How much are you willing to risk? You can answer that by how much you worry. It tells you how much you're willing to risk. Which is directly related to how strong your faith is. You say, okay, I realize that. I need help. Then you need to understand the resurrection. You need to live through resurrection lenses. Paul did. Turn over to Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. We're going to underline, circle. Paul, who fought and fought and kicked against Christ in his church, who sought to persecute her, was met by our Lord and Savior on the road to Damascus, was pressed into service. His conversion is just like all of ours. We just don't realize it. He was granted faith and repentance. Philippians, he's writing from jail. He talks about his goal in life. Verse 10. This is his whole overarching goal. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. What's your motto? He's got a motivational poster that says, I live by the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That's not going to motivate anybody unless you're a Christian and you understand how it all ends. Did you catch that? Unless you're a Christian like these disciples and believe and you understand how it all ends. And if you understand how it all ends, then it is the power of the resurrection that allows you to fellowship in his sufferings that allows you, if need be, to die because death has no sting. And to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul could risk. Paul could live joyously amid difficult circumstances. Paul could persevere against what his body and his mind could handle because he lived through the power of the resurrection. What does that mean? Is that some sort of mystical mumbo-jumbo? No, it's because he could see. Because Christ was raised from the dead. That means he's certainly coming back. That means he is certainly standing at the right hand of God, interceding for his church now. That our confession is an anchor for the soul as we've been learning in Hebrews. And that he who began a good work in us will complete it. And one day we will be in the Messianic kingdom. And we will taste that Cabernet Sauvignon. And we will celebrate. You know, if you think about it, the man at the party with the least actually gave the most. The sheer quantity and, and value of wine was an amazing gift to the couple, but 
But honestly, the real gift was to his mother, to his servants, to the servants, and to his disciples who, who caught a glimpse of his glory. And it strengthened their faith. And as John writes on the Isle of Patmos, you know his faith is strengthened, not just by the vision that he is seeing, but putting it all together, of seeing a glimpse of his glory, seeing him raised from the dead, and seeing this unbroken chain of him coming back for his own and having the marriage feast of the Lamb. Amen.